This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. We're going to have some fun today with our hot question of the day. How could we not? It is National One Hit Wonder Day. That song from that band that you go, oh my God, that was huge. And then you pretty much never heard from them again. The Wikipedia definition for One Hit Wonder is a a musical artist who is successful with one hit song, but without a comparable subsequent hit. So never reaching like those big heights again. Can't really name their other song, right? So what is the best song ever by a one hit wonder? Is it Come On Eileen? That's a pretty good one. That's on my list. You tell us what your favorite one hit wonder is. You can email it to me, simi at cknw.com. Cast your vote, though, at cknw or at simisera980 online. Call our buzz line, too, if you want to sing it for us. I'm sure you're better than Gord at singing, so absolutely go ahead and do that. 604-331-2899. Well, it seems like what's going on down in the United States today has taken on a different tone. Like, these latest revelations have opened a, a new door. So what's happened is a rough transcript of a phone call back in July shows that U.S. President Donald Trump repeatedly prodded Ukraine's new leader to work with Rudy Giuliani and the U.S. Attorney General to investigate the president's political opponent, Joe Biden. So in the call, uh, the president raised unsubstantiated allegations that the former vice president tried to interfere with a Ukrainian prosecutor's investigation of his son, Hunter Biden. This whole conversation, like you're wondering, where did this come from? How did this come up now? Well, it's actually part of a whistleblower's complaint. And it is this whistleblower's complaint that is really at the center of this formal impeachment inquiry that the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi launched yesterday. That's why you're like, okay, this seems new. Where did this come from? That's where it came from. And the connection to Attorney General William Barr also marks a new and potentially more serious issue for the president. So why is all of this so significant? You may have questions about that. I know we do. So we thought we would talk more about this now with the help of our guest. We've got Professor Paul Brace with us, a political scientist. Thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning. So clearly something has changed down in the United States. Does this seem different to you? Well, um, it might be a, a tipping point because this incident seems to be so clear, um, whereas the Mueller report, I think, ultimately was steeped in legalese and nuance. The actions um, conveyed in the whistleblower's alleged report would seem to suggest a very clear overstep by the president of the United States. And okay, so what are the rules here? Like for us in Canada, we look at this and we wonder, why is this so troubling what has been brought up in this phone call? Um, well, it's uh, uh, abuse of power, uh, allegedly. Um, the president was using the power of his office, uh, arguably uh, dangling um, much-needed U.S. aid to the Ukraine uh, for a reciprocal um, favor. And he, in fact, says, I need a favor. And that favor was to reactivate some investigation of Joe Biden's son, um, which had gone dormant, and um, best estimates are there was nothing there. The Obama administration had actually asked for that matter to be investigated, I believe, and nothing ever came of it. But the president was um, interested in that. He seemed to also make reference to Hillary Clinton's email server, which I think the president believed that the Ukraine may have had something to do with And so the president's clearly seeking political dirt um, on his adversaries' uh, past and or future, um, and he's using the power of foreign aid allocated by Congress, um, but he was threatening to withhold that, and he had withheld it, I guess, weeks before this phone call um, to to induce uh, the uh, newly elected president of the Ukraine to do him a favor. Does it seem also here like the president was inviting a foreign power to get involved in American politics? Uh, I think indirectly um, by inducing them to uh, stage an investigation 
with the apparent purpose of uh, producing some kind of dirt um, would seem to be uh, enlisting Ukrainian government in American politics. So, if, if only indirectly. Right. So then what are the next steps here, Paul? Like, what do you expect to see happen now? Well, impeachment clearly laid out in the U.S. Constitution, but the process for impeachment is uh, largely rests on precedent. And the most recent um, um, impeachments have focused largely on the Judiciary Committee. Now, uh, given what the Constitution says, there's no uh, the House is tasked with impeachment, which is like an indictment, and how they come up with a resolution supporting impeachment is left completely open. Nancy Pelosi could walk onto the House floor tomorrow and say, I have a resolution to impeach the president. Let's take a vote. That's not what she'll do, but she could. What will likely occur is largely guided by past practices. I'm thinking of Nixon in 1974, where so much effort was expended by the House Judiciary Committee under Peter Rodino. I believe the House Judiciary Committee played a leading role with the special prosecutor with Bill Clinton. So following past practice, one would imagine the House Judiciary Committee will let now uh, more formally go forward with uh, investigations of this incident and perhaps past incidents in helping the House draw up a resolution of impeachment, which would take 218 votes, a, a simple majority, to pass that resolution. But that's not the end of the world, though, right? Because, I mean, Bill Clinton was impeached and he stayed in office. That's right, because the second stage of the process is the trial occurs in the United States Senate. Here the bar is very high on on two levels. One is political. Um, The Republicans control the Senate. And there's no requirement that the Senate actually do anything with a House resolution of impeachment. And it's implied But let's not forget Mitch McConnell sat on a nomination of the United States Supreme Court after he arbitrarily decided that you can't do it in a presidential election year. He's since said if a vacancy comes forth next year, they will fill it for Donald Trump. So there's no strong rules guiding what Mitch McConnell would do. But if he does accept the resolution and conducts a trial in the Senate, then you have the high political bar of this being a Republican-dominated Senate and an institutional barrier. You have to have a two-thirds majority to convict in the Senate. And given the current numbers in the Senate, that seems unlikely. But we don't know what's in the resolution. We don't know what other things are going to come forward. And it could put some Republicans in a very uncomfortable position to vote against the resolution, depending on what's in it. Right. And then next year being an election year as well. And I understand like this, if you're if you're feeling like the president is beleaguered and has always been criticized and nothing ever comes of it, doesn't this also kind of play into that? Yep. It's managing the narrative. The president's already calling this a witch hunt and expect more of that. Um, And, you know, there's two outcomes here. One, he gets um, impeached in the House, which is bad for him, but he might actually want that because he knows the likelihood of being convicted in the Senate is almost uh, nil, given the composition of the Senate. And that would validate him. He would uh, he would take that as an exoneration, Um, certainly given that he took the Mueller report as an exoneration. He would take a failure to convict in the Senate as a complete vindication of everything he's done. And um, that would work certainly against Democrats. So the stakes are high. Um, How it plays out in an election year is particularly interesting. There are quite a few moderate Republicans up for re-election who may find it difficult to stand by the president throughout this process. On the other hand, if they back away from the president right now, they'll be inviting uh, probably strong primary challenges from staunch Trump supporters who are definitely out there in the country. That's right. And so I wonder, well, it seems to me, looking at this, you wonder, how is the United States government going to get anything done over the next year? Well, I don't know if you've been watching, but <laughs> we haven't been getting much done in the last year. So um, stay tuned. I mean, there are so many things that need to be done. And the president's already criticizing Pelosi and saying this is going to tie her up. And he has all these grand plans that he wants to get enacted, but because Pelosi's distracted, she won't be able to get anything done. So yeah, that's factoring in here. Absolutely. Um, The president will be in a position to say the do nothing Democrats are on a witch hunt, 
which is inhibiting the progress of his uh, agenda. And um, again, it's about managing the narrative. And this president um, knows how to drive a news cycle. And I was thinking, too, when you put it that way, it also seems like this is a no-win situation for everybody. Well, um, let's hope it's a win for the Constitution. Um, Because I think, you know, if we stick by the process and the procedures and engage in real fact-finding and accept real facts, which would be really nice, if we could get back to the point where we can all agree on what facts are, then move forward on that. And um, all I can say is we would hope for the best and let the facts lie where they they may and let's accept facts as facts when we see them. Oh, that's a big if, though, Paul. Oh, yeah. (laughs) If we can agree on what the facts are. It's a big wish. It's a big if and a big wish. (laughs) It certainly is. Listen, Paul, thanks very much for your time on this today. Sure, I enjoyed it. That's Professor Paul Brace, a Rice University political scientist, talking to us about what's happening in the United States today. Now, let's go to our story that we're going to talk about here. Now, any time that you start talking about politicians and increasing their salary, well, things get a little contentious. Like Few things rile up the public as much as politicians getting a raise, which is why when we came across this next story, we were definitely interested because in Nelson, they did things a little bit differently in the last year. In fact, council there voted to increase a councillor's salary significantly from $17,255 a year up to $25,000 a year, and also decided they should increase the mayor's salary from $42,000 a year up to just about $60,000 a year. Those are some pretty big jumps, right? We're going to talk more about this now, though, with Jesse Woodward, who is a first-time city councillor in Nelson. Jesse, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. How did this whole issue come up, the issue of raises? Um, it was actually brought forward, uh, by, I think it was a discussion in the last council. And then one of the councillors in, in that, uh, term brought it forward and decided to push the raise both for the councillor and the mayor. Right. That's pretty and, brave though, Jesse, you know, cause people don't necessarily like talking about raises for politicians. Yes. And I think, uh, there was a bunch of hubbub when it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the proof is in the pudding of what happened in Nelson. Okay, and what do you mean the proof is in the pudding? What happened? <laughs> what happened was uh, that there was that raise happened, and we had 19 people run. So it was a big field, uh, much more than we've had in a long time running in Nelson. And the, but the best part about it, it was a broad spectrum of people. You had single moms, you had young fam- people from young families, you had people who would, would not run uh, because they couldn't afford it. Or it just it just wasn't possible for them to work two jobs, and so what this allowed was an actual half decent wage. They could work on their job, they could, and they could still have a family life, and it really changed the whole political spectrum in Nelson. Do the people of Nelson understand that? Like, do they view that raise as a good thing? Well, I think what happened is that you had a, a spread of people who ran, and they had a lot of skill sets. It was people were running with. Uh, with the idea of, of, you know, coming in and treating it like a job, uh, not just like a position that you'd get if you were retired or, you know, that you, you, were, you were independently wealthy and you would do this on the side. This people were treating like, I'm going to try to get this job as a counselor and bring my skill sets to the table. And people voted for that. So we got uh, four, well, actually the entire council except one person was voted out last the last from the last uh, term okay so do you think, and so do you think this so, is more of a, of, of a concern do you think jesse for the smaller communities like nelson so that you can attract more people to run um i think it is a concern uh i just want to i just want to mention there was a there was three councillors that left from the last term but, but the other councillors did get voted out except for one i want to mention that okay and um and sorry, and the question was again? I was wondering if um, this that changed things, and do you think it's more relevant for smaller communities so that you get more people interested in running for council? Yes, I think what you get is a broader spectrum of a reflection of the community, a broader spectrum, and because you get people from different socioeconomic classes in the chamber making decisions and not just people who are independently wealthy or retired. And I think that really changed the landscape in Nelson. 
Um, and a lot of people were super concerned about the climate issues and the four young counselors that got on, uh, that was their major piece uh, that they uh, said they were going to work on uh, amongst housing, affordable housing and other issues. Right. But it, I think, yeah, go ahead. How do you think that has changed then how people view uh, city council? Well, I, I think people come up to me and, I, and the way they talk to me, they think that they've got good value for money. Um, you know, I come onto that table with a, a master's degree in sustainable environmental management. I worked in the environmental field for close to a decade before that um, with a lot of management skills. So that, and I was able to apply that like I would apply it to any job that I got. And I think people were looking for that. And when they got that, on council, I think they were like, okay, you know, they got a raise, but look at the quality of people that got onto that. And I think that is where you, I think that's where the benefit happens. You get quality uh, that wasn't there before and you get a younger viewpoint. And I have a, uh, I have a young family, a wife and a, and a child, and I would never have been able to do it if they didn't get that raise. Hmm. And I feel like I'm adding a, a level of, of quality and professionalism uh, that wouldn't uh, maybe wouldn't have been there if it wasn't for that race. Now, how does that go over with people, Jesse, when you talk to them on the street? When they if they want to complain to you about you know the salaries of counselors, what do you say? I, I say, you know, at any other job, uh, you know, that you people pay for what you get. So I think people were looking for some really. Uh, good skill sets that we're going to help Nelson move forward and deal with some of these climate issues, deal with some of the affordable housing issues and people voted. And if you look at how people voted in the last election in Nelson, you could see people were voting for skill sets. Uh, And because of the raise, those people with those skill sets were there to take up the challenge. And so I feel like the, if you, if you want to reinvigorate the political process in in your city or town or in your regional district, uh, raising the wage can have a positive effect. At least that's what I saw in Nelson. All right. Well, we're going to see about that because that's a tough sell for a lot of politicians, right? You start talking about salary increases and boy, people do get upset, don't they? They do. And I think, you know, there, there's also, it has to go along. That salary has to be paired with the size of the town. So, you know, counselors here in Vancouver, get much more of mm-hmm. course but they, it's a full-time job it's 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 uh i think um, uh, over a billion dollar uh yearly budgets the city works with uh nelson is 50 million uh budget with ten thousand people so uh the you know it has to be it has to pair with the size of the town the budget and all of that right but i still think it is as somebody said to me if you were hiring somebody to run a $50 million company, would you not want some decent skill sets there? Right. But how do you, what about the process? Like, I think what people also get uncomfortable here with Jesse is you've got people essentially voting on their own pay raise, right? And so is there a different way to do that that would make, do you think, the public more comfortable as well? Okay, there has a correction there. It's not, this happens at the end of term typically. So if the counselors from one uh, from one term are voting on the next term's counselors. So they're not giving them themselves necessarily a, uh, a raise. Okay. Is that a process they're, that happens at the end of every term? That happens at the end of every term. So the, the, what we did is we, uh, we initiated a bylaw, uh, our set of rules, that at the end of every term, the city staff would look at what other towns our size were doing and match looking for a match of what counselors should be making. So it's adjusting to what other small right. communities like Nelson are doing. Wow, I think you're very brave. Um, a lot of politicians wouldn't come out and say that. <laughs> well, I, I feel I, I, I'm a, uh, Nelson is my hometown. I've been there most of my life. I care deeply about Nelson. I, I, I wanted to be part of the political process. I couldn't have done it. I couldn't have uh, had, done what I did and, and pay my mortgage and, 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 and help my right. family if that raise wasn't there and I feel like I work hard at this job, I, I care deeply. Uh, and when I go out on the street, I get very positive regard for the work I do. Now, of course it's up to each politician of the kind of work they do. It, that is, 
you know, you, 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 uh, that's the challenge is that you get people in there who want to do the work right? and, and want to support their community. And so I feel, I feel like I do a good job and I get that on the street and, and, and I mean, you, you could not do a good job and still collect your paycheck, which is a real drag. That but is. I, and, but I think that if you want a, the next generation of young people, 30 and 40 year olds, even 20 year olds moving up into the ranks, of the political scene, you've, you've got to give them something to work with. Okay. Uh, Jesse, thank you very much for your time on this. You're welcome, and thank you uh, for the opportunity. That is Jesse Woodward, a first-time city councillor in Nelson, talking about the issue of salaries at the municipal level. I love this song, Madness, Our House, another great one-hit wonder. So many of them actually came from like the 80s when I was growing up, and I wonder if that's maybe why I remember them so well. Well, today is National One-Hit Wonder Day, and boy, do you have thoughts on that. This all got started, of course, as we were sitting around getting ready for the show this morning. Claire Allen, our show contributor, jumped in with a whole bunch of them, and Claire, I have to say, we didn't really see eye-to-eye on a few of them. By the way, somebody uh, messaged me and said uh, Cisco's what is that song that you like so much? Thong song. Yes, that's right. And I thought, oh, Claire will be happy. When, I love that song. Yeah, I know. I don't know why, but it's a know. great song. That's why. <laughs> like that song makes everybody want to dance when it comes on. If you're from a certain era, era that which era. is mine. Yes, exactly. But he can't be classified as a one-hit wonder because he performed under another name, Drew Hill. So. Not a one-hit wonder. There it's you go. It's hard to really get a firm grasp on. What is a one-hit wonder? Is it a one-and-done, like never heard from again? Or is it like you had one hit, you may have had a bunch of other like semi-hits, or you had albums that were somewhat successful, but you were never able to replicate the white-hot heat of that right. one hit? Uh, I use an example for this, um, Lou Bega, mm. Mambo Number no. 5, because yes. that song was huge in 1999. Yeah. Where has Lou Bega been ever since then? And so I looked him up this morning, and I, it turns out Vanity Fair had done an article on him, like, whatever happened to Lou Bega. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that his next album came out September 2001. Yeah. And he says that he was aware that at that point things changed and people weren't looking for happy music or upbeat music. And so it just didn't work out for him. Yeah. But I've heard song. of other, other artists that had release dates close to September 11th and that, that was it for their career. Uh, the original movie Zoolander came out like September 13th. They're like right around there. Oh, really? Yeah. And so months later when I rented it, when and it bombed badly, months later when I rented it, I was like, this movie's hilarious. Whoa, how come I didn't know about this movie? It's because we were all preoccupied with other things. Right. Of course. Right. Yeah. But we're talking one hit wonders today. Let's uh, run through some of the picks. Would you like my list, by the way? Yes, you can go first, Simi. Oh, thank you. So here's my list list of one-hit wonders. I'm going to start with, and I've been saying this all morning long, but the one that I pick as number one is Come On Eileen. Great one-hit wonder. I also put on my list this great song by Soft Cell, Tainted Love. Great song. Great beat. Right? Many people have emailed me and said that as well. The third one, because we decided like three was a good number, mm-hmm. is a song, um, I think it was from the movie Valley Girl originally back in the mid- early early 1980s. This would be Modern English and I Melt the World. Oh, I really don't like this song. What? <laughs> you don't like this song? It's not my fave. Not my fave of your top three here. I love that I song. I know, I know, I know, I know. Maybe it's just too much These of my very era. Very 80s picks. Well, yeah, that's the era that I grew up in. Yeah, okay. Uh, now okay. You know, you've been soliciting right, other right. ones, so let's yes. go through those. So we'll start with Alan, the producer of the Simi Sarah Show, some of his picks. Okay. So he picked number one from his top three Len, Steal My Sunshine. I know it's a You know, that song? They're Canadian, uh, Simi. Are they? Yes. I actually had, okay, so somebody who tweeted is, this is Van Culler on Twitter, mm-hmm. said, I'm sorry, but Steal My Sunshine is not only the best one-hit wonder song, but it's also the best song, period. I'm like, well, that person in, really feels strongly like, about that song. In the world? Uh, certainly. <laughs> I don't know about that. So it was released in 1999, and it was actually, it charted at num- number three in Canada, Australia, and Ireland, and number eight in the UK singles chart, and number nine on the US Billboard 100. So, you know, I'm pretty pretty good for a, a Canadian band. I guess so. Okay, so that's on Alan's right. list. What else does he have? Next he has House of Pain, Jump Around. I can't make it down. I can't make it down. So get out your seat and jump around. I do 
like this song. Yeah, good song. Kind of makes you want to get up out of your chair. And- yeah, so this was a big hit in 1992, reached number three in the United States, and VH1 has said it's um, one of the greatest songs of the 90s. I believe that. It's a great song. And you hear yes. it. You know, you hear this song at a lot of sporting events. It's played a lot. It's very high energy. Yeah, totally. I like so I think, you know, that's a great one hit wonder. It has a lot of play because of the high energy of the song. Okay. Um, okay. So Alan's third third pick is Tub Thumpin' by Chumbawamba. I get no doubt. Yeah, you know this one. Great song. Yeah. Unfortunately for them, uh, it placed number 12 in Rolling Stone's list of 20 most annoying songs. <laughs> It is pretty annoying. <laughs> uh, you know what? As soon as you play, you're like, that's really great. I don't need two minutes of it. No, I, no, no. Like, literally, I need 30 seconds exactly. of it. Exactly. It. it did make it to number one in Canada, though. Really? That was a big song. I remember it when I was younger. That was yes. a big song. But I do agree with Rolling Stone. It's pretty annoying. It is pretty annoying. Okay. So um, a contributor for the Linda Steele show, Eric Chapman, he also had a couple picks. I had to limit it to two, though, because the third one he gave me was way too obscure. And I was just like, I couldn't. What was it? And I don't even know. It really? was by the SOS band. Oh, I know that song. But it only sold 800,000 copies in the 80s. So I was like, is this really a hit? You're right. Anywho, okay. let's start with his uh, first pick. Right said Fred, I'm too sexy. I'm too sexy I love this song. This is the 90s, right? The video's really creepy to me. (laughs) I was watching it. I felt very uncomfortable. However, so um, it made it to number one in the US, the UK, number one in Japan, worldwide hit. Did you know that this song, they got a writing credit on Taylor Swift's song, Look What You Made Me Do, because they believed it was uh, deemed that the songs were similar. So they it was. They're still making money. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I did I know. not know that. So uh, look what ma- look what you made me do is off her um, not this album but the album before Reputation. And, and so they- Wright said Fred has been making money off Taylor Swift. Yeah. Wow, good oh, for them. That's a I lot guess. of money. Yeah, they can kick back with that one. Uh, and so then Eric's next choice because I limited to I two was uh, Groove this. Is in the Heart by Delight. Groove is in the heart. Love the song. Mm-hmm. So good. Yeah, it reached number one in Canada on the dance charts, charts, and it was released in August 1990. They actually performed it. They recorded it in the 80s, and they were performed it a few times, but it only kind of came to worldwide hits in 1990. And it was like the lead single from their debut album. That's really tough, though, because I was like, you peaked early, and it was... That was it. That was yeah, it. that's After one that. and done status. <laughs> All right, so then we get to Let's my pick. Yes. My first pick is a little controversial, but I believe mm-hmm. it is Nothing Compares to You by Sinead O'Connor. Can you name another hit by her? No. Yeah, me neither. But like apparently she has known, other yes, albums. I'd known of her. She'd kind of been around. Yeah. But this was the song that made her, everybody knew who she was. Do you attribute the fall to ripping up the picture of the Pope on SNL? Listen, I was watching that episode of Saturday Night Live when that happened. And I was like, ooh. That's kind of crazy, and then things went nuts. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, she's had a lot of uh, a lot of ups troubles. And ups and downs. Uh, but the song was originally written by Prince. Yeah, and uh, he has he has a version of it that he has performed the song. Um, and apparently, she and Prince did not get along at Ooh. all. Yeah, oh. she claims that there was some sort of physical altercation oh, between boy. the two of them. But who knows? Who knows exactly? So my next pick, which I'm surprised this hasn't come up yet. Ice Ice Baby by Vanilla Ice. Only because the dancing is so great in this video. I can't see, like, I'm such a huge fan of Under Pressure. Yeah. Which is the song they sample for this that I, I have a hard time listening to this song because it just makes me want to hear Under Pressure. Did you know that uh, Under Pressure by uh, David Bowie and uh, Freddie Mercury, Queen, yeah, exactly. They did not receive uh, songwriting credit or royalties until after this became a hit. And it's interesting that this Ice Ice Baby was, um, was actually the first hip hop song to chart as number one in the really? Billboard Hot 100. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know that. I just remember that at the time it was like, what is this combination of music? Like it was revolutionary in its time because it was the first big song to sample another song from the past. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. It was a big sample. Uh, after that sampling and, was very, became very popular. And what does he do now? He hosts uh, what nothing. reality TV I mean, shows about building houses in Florida or something like that? Yes. Uh, <laughs> he, he was hung upside down by Suge Knight out of a, oh, uh, off a skyscraper. And then now, you know, he is just building houses in Florida. So, and then, to bring it into some more modern times, Thank you. I chose somebody that I used to know by Gautier featuring Kimbra. So, Simi, this song was huge, Claire. So it was only a few years ago. Big. Yes, in 2012, it spent 44 weeks in the top 40. 
And it won Record of the Year of her Best Pop Duo and Group Performance at the 55th uh, Grammy Awards. Now, this Gautier person, this performer, <laughs> he disappeared from the music scene after this hit. Now, he's completely, like, gone off the radar. He does have a Twitter account where he t- promotes other projects, but there's no follow-up. Really? Nothing. Yeah, so I think he's a great one-hit wonder because literally, you're right. That song was huge in 2012. You couldn't go anywhere without hearing that song. Um, quite, quite annoying. In my it, and well, now I, now that years have passed, like I can listen to it again. Whereas at the time, I'm like, I can't take one more hearing of this mm-hmm. song. What about Size Gangnam Style? Well, I had I, Holly just emailed me and said, "Come on, what about Size Gangnam Style?" But, I would have agreed with with Holly, and and I think so. But then Alan Regan, the producer, said that apparently this guy has some other hits. Now it's not what I listen to, but apparently it's out there, and he's had hits. Right. Okay. I had a lot of people who mentioned Spirit in the Sky by Norman Greenbaum. We played that earlier. Mm-hmm. I actually prefer the Doctor and the Medics version, which came out in the 80s, which mm-hmm. was also a one-hit wonder, but Lori emailed about that. And what about another one from my era, uh, Tommy Two-Tone, 8675-309. Do you know how many kids did prank phone calls when that song came out with that phone imagine. number? Yeah. I'm really curious as to, we talked about this earlier, about... When you're one, when you wrote a one-hit wonder, let's say in this '80s or the '90s, the heyday of music, you probably could have lived quite well off that oh, one I'm hit, sure you could have. especially if you were the songwriter too. But now, like Gautier, is he living well? Is he like collecting the royalties? No. I don't know because back in the day, you'd have to buy the album usually Just to, to get, get the one song. song. Now you can download the one song, and you're making not that much. But I'm just wondering, like, if you have a one-hit wonder, if you have a, if you become a one-hit wonder in 2019, are you living well? No. Oh, I don't think so. I think it's nice, but you're supposed to show up and do club appearances right. or whatever. Gotta what about dust, "Dust in the Wind" by Kansas? Uh, I no, no, I don't know. Sure. Yeah, but, that's a that's a great yeah that's I, an example. Ninety nine Luft below. I hate that song. Oh so my goodness, much. strong thoughts. Also, hey there, De- hey, hey, hey there, Delilah, Delilah by on. the Plain White Tees. Nothing. There's no one hit wonder that makes me cringe so much, like makes me want to regurgitate food. I can't. Guess, guess I can't. what we're going to play no, as we uh, go to break here, it's Claire. It's so yeah. awful. I, I also think that Hey There Delilah is a great one hit wonder. But you know what? What's your choice? There's other news going on today as well. So we're going to talk about some provincial political issues. We've heard that citing personal reasons, the BC Auditor General, Carol Bellringer, has quite suddenly announced her resignation and it will be effective at the end of this year, December 31st. Now, she had had a couple of more years due in the job. So what is going on here? Well, let's check in with Richard Zussman, our Global News Online legislative reporter in Victoria. Hi, Richard. Hi, Simi. How are you? I'm okay. I, have you played uh, Mumbo Number no. 5 yet? Thank you for that. Yes, we talked about Lou Bega. Like that's that, one of my That's favorites. the ultimate, right? I think so. Or what's the other one is... Um, uh, I like that you knew that I was going to ask you about this, so you had some ready. I think that, that tells I, me... I just popped, it popped in my head. It's one of the topics I often Google search, and I'm also <laughs> curious if Old Town you. Road is going to be qualified as a one-hit wonder. The, the world is so different now, right? Like, is it a hit if it's, it's popular y- it's on soon, YouTube? Though. Is it popular on streaming? Like, you know, back in the day, it used to be popular on the radio... If you had one top 40 hit, you were a one-hit wonder. Yeah. But I wonder, like, how you classify it. Is Carly Rae Jepsen a one-hit yes. wonder? Yes. But there's other... She's had some other songs to me but nothing that, that was as the big. top 40. Yeah, but nothing that was, like, as big where you're like, oh, I love that new Carly well, Rae Jepsen song. Michael Jackson never had anything as big as Thriller, but he's also a 20-hit wonder. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there's... I wonder about that definition. It is one of the things that keeps me up at night. Uh, oh, does is it? Is how to define a one-hit wonder. You're such an interesting person. We defined it as this. A one-hit wonder is defined as a musical artist who is successful with one hit song, but without a comparable subsequent hit. Yeah, okay. So I guess Carly... Carly, Carly Rae Jepsen, Jepsen like, I don't know. maybe qualifies perfectly oh, under that definition. Huge song. Somebody else just wrote me and said, what about Betty Davis' eyes? Doesn't that count as a one-hit wonder? Right, I think it's like if it's one song you can think of by the artist and the only song you can think of, 
There you go. That, that's what is a one hit wonder. I agree. So thank you. So you had Lou Bega, Mambo Number no. Five, great yeah, song. That's right? the one that always sticks out. And uh, Chumbawamba, uh, Tub Thumping is also one that yes. sticks out of my mind. We wanted Gord McDonald to sing that earlier, but he couldn't do that for us, unfortunately. Well, there's always time. <laughs> there is you know. always time. Uh, but we've got a great list. So there's Richard's choices. But we've got to talk about this now. Th- this yeah. really took me by surprise when I heard about this. Is a Carol Bellringer has resigned. Yeah, it took me by surprise as well. So uh, Carol Bellringer, many of the listeners will know, is BC's Auditor General. Uh, she has done a number of very important investigations during her time in office here. Uh, she is resigning 18 months uh, before her term, her second term ends. That would have been the max she could have served. And what makes it very curious is the timing. She says it's for personal reasons. Uh, she will not be doing any subsequent interviews to explain what personal reasons mean. But what makes it so fascinating, Simi, is just last week, Bell Ringer released a report uh, into the spending at the legislature, one of multiple audits she said she was doing. And she was criticized uh, by Speaker Daryl Plekis. Uh, and uh, there were some members of the media who were very critical of how she conducted the mm-hmm. audit, whether it should have been a forensic audit. I think there is a conclusion out there that people want answers and potentially a forensic audit is the answer to that. So it's unclear whether the two things have to do with each other, but the timing is really, really suspicious, especially considering how critical Plekis has been at times for various different reasons of the decisions that Bellringer has made in terms of evaluating the misspending at the legislature. Now, we had gone through this last week, and I remember that we had Vaughn on and Ron Palmer from the Vancouver Sun talking about that report. And he had questioned a couple of numbers in there that really seemed quite unusual. For instance, the speaker's travel budget had tripled in the space of one year, going from about $20,000 a year to $60,000 a year. And when we questioned that, she she hadn't really looked into that or hadn't investigated or hadn't thought it relevant. And that seemed kind of odd at the time, too. It is a bit odd. And it's a matter of contention because we now have clarity from the Speaker's office and Chief of Staff Alan Mullen that the increased expenses mainly had to do uh, with Mullen's job himself and that he was traveling from Vancouver to Victoria to do the job. And that's why we saw a spike in expenses. But I think there was a responsibility there for the Auditor General to better explain why that number existed. Uh, You know, we were hoping to get answers last week on that from Plekis. They didn't come immediately and eventually came. And I think especially how explosive this topic is, when you're going to put something in that that will be flagged by reporters, I think it's important uh, to clarify that. The other big issue here, Simi, and I'm not sure if the listeners will remember, but back in January after the Plekis report came out and there were calls from the Legislative Assembly Management Committee to do a forensic audit. The committee actually voted initially to go out of province, to get someone outside of BC to evaluate British Columbia. Bellringer spoke out at the time saying that would be inappropriate. It's her job to do this. She even at that point said, well, if you're not going to task me with this job, then I should just quit. Oh, I remember think that. Yeah. Plekis Uh, And the others who voted for it were probably right that it would have been helpful to have an audit done outside of British Columbia in sync with work being done by Bellringer looking at existing rules and practices. So there's a lot of things at play here. Personalities get involved. And again, we are are completely unclear because Bellringer will not answer any questions about what's going on in her life. And, Hmm. you know, the job carries with it a lot of stress, especially considering the immense public pressure on the report last week and criticisms that she received. It's tough to be criticized for your work, obviously. And I think all of that may have boiled down to the point of questioning whether she wants to keep doing this. She is going to stay on until the end of this year. She will help with the transition. The Auditor General's office, from everything that I understand, will continue to do audits looking in to the rules and misspending at the legislature. But clearly the timing is weird here and uh, makes no, no doubt will make anyone who's been following the story jump to the conclusion this this has to do with the conflict between the speaker uh, as well as other members of the Legislative Assembly Management Committee and the work the Auditor General is doing. Right. So that's going to mean a change in the office. And as you mentioned, yeah. she's been there since September 2014. Uh, before her, I think there was a, 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 an acting Auditor General and there was John Doyle was really the one right. who'd been in there for a long time before that. Uh, yeah. And, and he served and... and 
also did work looking at some flaws in the accounting practices around the legislature. And that was raised again on the phone call around how could these problems continue to persist when the auditor generals of the past have flagged them. I think that's part of a larger debate around, you know, whether we have put in the necessary rules and practices at the legislature. But it's a critical role, Simi, the auditors is in terms of looking at the way that money is spent throughout government from looking from things like BC Hydro to the Site C Dam. She did a recent report that was very interesting in terms of lead in the water. Like it's just that that job is varied and can offer many perspectives around the way that our money in British Columbia is spent and and is it done with the right rules, uh, regulations and oversight most importantly. All right, we'll be talking to you more about this. Richard, thank you. Thanks, Amy. That's Richard Dustman, our Global News Online legislative reporter. Well, tomorrow is World Contraception Day and ahead of that, there's a group called Options for Sexual Health that is calling on the government of BC and the Legislative Assembly to put forth some ideas for the 2020 budget that would include making all forms of prescription contraception universally accessible and free for any citizen. And they're making some very good arguments for why that should be the case. So we thought, let's hear some of those arguments. Nicole Pasquino joins us now, a registered nurse and clinical practice director for Options for Sexual Health right here in Vancouver. Nicole, thank you for joining us. Hi, Simi. Thanks so much for having me. Now, I understand that from some of the reasons why you're bringing this forward is that there's actually a cost savings to doing it this way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, unintended pregnancy bears a huge burden of cost on our healthcare system. And we know that in Canada, about 40% of pregnancies or even more are unintended. And so having access to contraception is one of the most effective ways to prevent unintended pregnancies. All right. So what would that involve? Like, what are you advocating the government to do here? So we're advocating the government when a patient walks into a clinic such as ours, their family doctors, that they can walk away with a contraception that works for them is effective, that they will continue to use, and they do not have to pay for that out of pocket. And you think that just also for anybody to walk in and be able to ask for that, it should be universally accessible? Absolutely. I mean, access to contraception is essential to the securing the well-being of women. Um, a person's ability to choose when and if they become pregnant has a direct impact on their health and well-being. And so, you know, that's a huge portion of our population that has difficulties accessing contraception here in British Columbia. Now, how much would that cost? How much would it cost to cover everybody for contraception? (laughs) Well, it's difficult to determine that because uh, people access contraception in a variety of ways through publicly funded programs in youth clinics and other family doctors. But we know that it's estimated, there was a study done in 2015, that it would be a cost savings of over $157 million. So, um, you know, thinking about the cost of contraception itself and then adding that savings onto it. And so where does that savings come from then? Does that come from... Um, uh, the supports that happen after an unwanted pregnancy, like you're talking about single moms or whatever the case may be? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a number of ways that savings is impacted. Um, You know, we pay MSP premiums for people to go in and see their physicians and come back and access contraceptions. There would be savings there. There would be savings around the ability to plan your pregnancies, to have less pregnancies, Um, access to abortion, while very important and we will always advocate for, would be needed less if we had universal access to contraception. Do other jurisdictions do this? There's lots of other countries in the world that do this. Um, And the way that it's looked in Canada has typically been for certain populations only. So it used to be that it was, uh, you know, older youth. Now they are really limiting it to younger youth. Um, You know, there's some coverage within healthcare programs or extended health practices. But there's lots of countries in the world like UK, France, Spain, Sweden, who cover contraception universally for their populations. Is it challenging, do you think, for some women in BC to access contraception? A hundred percent. So I work in clinical practice and I often have to turn people away because they can't afford their contraception. Sitting in the chair in front of me crying because they can't afford their contraception. So, you know, it's not an uncommon instance, even in an urban environment. Obviously, there's more challenges rurally because of the lack of healthcare providers and the ability to access low-cost contraception. But we are, you know, we constantly see patients who cannot afford to pay for their contraception month to month. And what kind of costs are we talking about? How expensive Uh, It depends where you access it. I mean, Options for Sexual Health, our main mission is to keep 
contraception low cost. So when you come into a clinic like ours, uh, it's around $15 a month for uh, oral contraception and it can be anywhere up to 400 for something that's a long-acting contraception like an IUD over many years. But that's an upfront cost that people have to pay. And if you're accessing it through your family physician or pharmacy, it can be up to 40 to $60 a month, which is really inaccessible, especially for, you know, um, certain populations which are disproportionately affected by access are youth, Indigenous women, trans people. So, you know, it depends right. on the population you're in. Yeah, Right. And then plus going to the doctor, right? And going if you don't have doctor. a family doctor, you got to yeah. find a clinic that you can get in there yeah. and actually get all this from. Right. And, you know, we have, we operate 60 clinical sites within the province and we hear time and time again from our nurses. And I've experienced this personally as a practitioner of turning people away. We turn people away constantly because when we show up at the door for a drop-in clinic at seven o'clock, we have a lineup around the corner. You're kidding. No. (laughs) I had this experience last week where, you know, I came to work at a clinic and our clinics are, um, they operate on short times and this is in urban Vancouver and, you know, we're here for a two hour clinic and there's 27 people waiting to see the practitioners for sexual health care. So not just contraception, but STI care as well. Right. So clearly we need to improve when you say like overall in this whole area. Mm hmm. Like to make it easier for women to access. And I had, we had this question actually just the other day. A lady was telling me, like, yeah, she would love to be able to get more checkups and, and, and do everything that she needs to do, but she doesn't have a family doctor. Right. And, you know, a lot of people say that to us. They don't have family doctors. So we also see a lot of patients around general sexual health needs for cervical screening and things like this. And even sometimes when people do have family doctors, there's connotations associated with that. So maybe they've been their family doctor since birth. They don't feel comfortable with that person. Maybe that person's a male practitioner and they just don't feel that the intimate care is a place for them to have it at their family doctor. And we often hear, too, that people will go to walk-in clinics. But, you know, um, many there's many amazing walk-in clinic doctors, but the pace that they work at isn't necessarily conducive to intimate care. And, you know, um, we know that women disproportionately face trauma. And so when it's coming to sexual health, people, you know, people need to have that time and experience to be able to be, um, you know, voice their concerns and receive the trauma-informed care that they deserve. So how do you see this unfolding? Like if you were going to suggest a plan for the provincial government, what should that look like? I mean, you know, it's a bit of a no-brainer. I think we already have uh, provincial programs that cover medications. We already have um, systems in place that cover all kinds of medications in British Columbia. But I think the important part about contraception is that it needs to be put in place in a way that patients can access it where they receive their care and access the contraception they need. So often when these places, these kind of programs are put in, it might cover one or two products, but we know within contraceptive care that doesn't work. We need It needs to be the product that best suits the woman. So they need to have it accessible through their family doctors, through clinics like ours, as well as through pharmacies. And so what do you, tomorrow is a big day, obviously, World Contraception yeah. Day. Are you writing a letter to the government? Do you want to meet with the health minister? How is this going to work? <laughs> so we're currently at Options for Sexual Health um, in all of our clinics and some of the ag- advocacy work we're doing is we have a petition going around that we'll be presenting to the government and legislative assembly demanding free access to contraception. Um, We currently see over 30,000 patients a year in British Columbia for sexual health care and many of them access contraception through our clinics at low cost. Um, So, you know, it's a really important issue and we'll definitely be bringing that forward to them. Tomorrow, as an organization, we're spending some time educating our staff around best practices and looking at, um, you know, how how to, how to best serve our patients, whether you're in a rural or an urban community. All right, so you've got a lot of work to do then, Nicole. Yes, thank, it's thank, a big week. <laughs> it is. Thank you very much for taking the time out to talk to us. Thanks, Amy. Thanks so much for having me. That is Nicole Pasquino, who's a registered nurse and the Clinical Practice Director for Options for Sexual Health here in Vancouver. They run a number of uh, sexual health clinics. Yes, it is time for our Where We Live series. I'm still getting lots and lots of one-hit wonders as well. And yes, we will be playing more of them and going through them, talking more about that coming up on this hour of the show. But right now, as part of our Where We Live series. We wanted to highlight a park that has become well known, I think, for its name. And sure, in the city of Vancouver, we're unique in the sense that we can find some some kind of natural sanctuary, even in the most busy and bustling areas, right? And when it comes to Mount Pleasant, I think that's very true. Well, Amir Ali is going to walk us through a place that is just hidden behind the busy intersection of Broadway and Kingsway. Yes, it is well known just by the name, Dude Chilling Park. 
Generally speaking, my favorite spots in the city are those that tend to be just hidden away in plain sight. I don't like the places that people flock to and overcrowd and are noisy and obnoxious. Case in point, Dude Chilling Park. Tucked away behind the busy intersection of Broadway and Kingsway off Main Street, where anxious coffee drinkers are trying to get to work. Lois! Coffee! Or where anxious coffee drinkers are rushing to get their coffees before rushing to work. I need some coffee. You simply walk a few blocks away from this noise, behind Broadway, and you enter Dude Chilling Park. Its official name is Guelph Park, but in November of 2012, a prankster by the name of Victor Brustensky decided to create a fake sign. The sign was actually in reference to the reclining figure. Now, the reclining figure is a sculpture made by West Coast artist Michael Dennis. And I actually caught up with Michael to ask him a few questions about the figure that inspired the name Dude Chilling Park. I asked Michael what his general inspiration is when he's creating a sculpture. Well, um, there are two inspirations. One is, one is nature, and mostly I am working with cedar. And I tr try to use the wood in a way so that you can still see the tree. There's some allusion to the tree of origin within the finished piece. And the second inspiration is, is um, humanity, really. Humans, the human form is the most interesting to me. I also asked him if he had anything specific in mind for his reclining figure, now known as the dude. Not much. My intention was a, a human form of somebody who is just kind of at ease. You know, relaxing in the in the afternoon sun. I wondered if Michael had any issues with the fact that people called his reclining figure the dude. I'm the dude. Oh, I like that. I like it. You know, when I said reclining figure the initial in the initial creation, it was just this vague allusion to what is it, without anything more. But the dude, I like that. That you know, dude, chilling. He's just chilling out in the park, and so I use that title for him now, her, it. Finally, I asked Michael about his thoughts on Dude Chilling Park, and he emphasizes exactly why I love this place. You know, it's not this great grand thing, but it's just a community park, and what I particularly like is the community uses it. There are people playing frisbee and volleyball, and people with their children, and people with their dogs, and, uh, people with a bottle of wine, all, all the complete spectrum. This all came about because that in 1992, there was this Brewery Creek art exhibition, and friend said, oh, why don't we take, you know, take our work and go down there? And it was a nice summer afternoon. It was just sitting there reclining. I was reclining beside it, and a woman came up. She introduced herself, Susan Gordon, who was then the head of the Mount Pleasant neighborhood association and she said oh i really like this and I said, oh thank you and she said why don't you just leave it yeah you know there aren't too many people who's too many professions where you would dare to go up and say oh why don't you just give me what you're doing art somehow that acceptable when things go in some rich man's backyard i get more money for it but in terms of appreciation and use and like children, they don't have any concern about is this good art or bad art or what. They just know what to do and they go climb on it. And I, I really like that. So if you're ever in the area and you need an escape from the bustling noise of the city, you know where to go. And remember, say hi to the dude. For CKNW and the Where We Live series, I'm Amir Ali. Right now, we want to take a look at what's happening down in the United States because it seems like things, while already crazy, took an even crazier turn today. Are we actually looking at impeachment proceedings against U.S. President Donald Trump? And if so, why is that? Well, we're going to talk now with our Global News Washington Bureau reporter, Reggie Cicchini, who is joining us. Hi, Reggie. Good afternoon. How are you? It's been a long day. Yes, <laughs> I can imagine that. So There's something new that happens basically every hour. Here. Uh, this is what I'm thinking. Run us through kind of the basics of what's going on. 
Uh, so the most recent thing that's happened within the last 10 minutes or so is we have found out that Congress is now actually in possession of the whistleblower complaint uh, that had been made a couple of months ago to the Inspector General. There was some back and forth as to whether or not the Department of Justice was going to let it be seen or whether the White House was going to try and release it, which they were supposed to do. At the end of the day, Congress is now officially uh in possession of that whistleblower content, which they can use to uh, verify accuracy of the, uh, you know, um, phone call, half transcript sort of memo sort of record that was released uh, earlier today. So those are the two biggest uh, developments that have happened within the last couple of hours. And so why is this whistleblower complaint so concerning? Well, it's concerning because this person, he or she, uh, is uh, believed to have heard what they thought to be uh, something of concern when it was uh, dealing with the president having a conversation or numerous conversations with the president of the Ukraine, whether or not there was some quid pro quo or whether or not there was some kind of uh, pressure that was being put on Ukraine to open up an investigation into Joe Biden. The inspector general felt this to be a threat to national security uh, and potentially a uh, campaign finance violation. So so it was put forward uh, to be dealt with by Congress and to potentially see if the president had broken any ethics in the Oval Office. OK, and so what is and then today we saw that the White House released their version of the transcript. Some things redacted of that call. What was so concerning in that phone call? So there's a, it's a four page you know document that's been unclassified now and at one point it talks uh, the president starts asking questions about Joe Biden and starts talking about a prosecutor that had been doing investigation into a company that was linked to Joe Biden's son uh, that prosecutor eventually would be fired uh, for not dealing with corruption it was a move that was widely praised by uh, Western democracies Joe Biden had a hand in uh, getting that prosecutor let go but the president sees problem in that he sees that uh, Joe Biden was potentially uh, playing too strong of a hand or not playing by the rules of the law. So the president's trying to tie this by saying, look, corruption is happening in the Ukraine because of Biden. Can you please investigate Joe Biden and all the things surrounding Joe Biden uh, that have to do with your country? And that's where questions are now being uh, raised, because at the end of the day, Joe Biden very well could be the political opponent to President Donald Trump in the election. And we're in an election campaign right now. So we have the president asking a foreign country to get involved in an election. Okay, that seems like a big deal. And the reaction in Congress has been what? Well, it is, first of all, it is a big deal because we saw what happened in 2016 when Russia was involved in the election and we know what kind of turmoil that has. So that's why there's a lot of alarms and flags being raised about this. The reaction in Congress has been uh, what you'd expect from the Democrats uh, up to and including yesterday when Nancy Pelosi pushed for uh, this impeachment proceeding, which is now official or impeachment inquiry, which has officially been opened up. Democrats have been rallying behind her. Democratic presidential candidates have been calling for this. Republicans, on the other hand, are saying nothing to see here, nothing that the president did in this conversation was inappropriate, and uh, they're sticking with uh, the man that they have stuck with for the last two and a half years, no matter what he has said and what he has done. They <laughs> Okay, I'm, I'm a little astounded by that one, Richie, I have to say. So he was inviting a foreign power to like meddle in American affairs, essentially, and investigate said, his political opponent, and the Republicans don't see a problem with that. No, they don't see a problem with that. Just like a lot of them will still choose to fight against the uh, the the now proof that we have that Russia uh, was meddling in the 2016 election. There are still a number of Republicans who say, uh, you know, the president didn't collude. The president uh, had no kind of corruption around him. So, you know, let's just ignore this. Uh, they're basically doing the same thing here. But when you're actually reading through these five pages of this phone call between the president, at one point, uh, the Ukrainian president is <laughs> asking about uh, military aid and whether or not they're going to be purchasing any uh, defense equipment from the United States. And the president goes on to say, well, I have a favor to ask of you. And that's when he goes into this uh, conversation about uh, an investigation into Joe Biden, which is what has Democrats really rattled right now. Um, yeah. <laughs> How do you think this is going to play, though, with the general public? Like, it just seems like battle lines are being drawn uh, for the election next year. They are, and some of those uh, red lines in the sand have been drawn since the day that President Trump announced his candidacy a number of years ago. Uh, this is going to make its way onto the campaign trail. Joe Biden is already campaigning on this. We've already had emails out from the Trump campaign as well, uh, basically saying, look, it's another witch hunt, and, and the Democrats are out to get the president. He's going to use this to uh, rally up that 35% base that he has that surrounds him at all times. It's going to uh, be fuel for him when he's standing at the podium at these campaigns. Uh, Democrats 
now have just another thing to add to their list uh, when they're standing at these debates. They can talk about healthcare, they can talk about the economy, they can talk about guns. Now they can talk about this collective uh, agreement that they have within the party to uh, deal with President Trump if he happens to be impeached. So regardless of what side is talking about it, it has now made its way into the campaign. Wow. Okay. so then what are the next steps here, Reggie? What happens now? So we have the director of national intelligence to whom this uh, this um, whistleblower complaint would have been lodged to uh, testifying openly and behind closed doors in Congress tomorrow. Uh, there were some reports that he was threatening to potentially resign from his position if the White House tried to step in his way. He's put out a statement saying that's not true, but he has uh, been on the record as saying that he wants to be able to uh, fully speak to Congress and, and testify openly about this whistleblower complaint. So that's the first step of what's going to happen. The president is uh, 23 minutes late right now, but is supposed to speak at a news conference at the United Nations, and you can imagine that this is going to be very peppery uh, with a number of questions being lobbed at him about this, and then it's simply going to be the investigations that continue in the president uh, by the Democrats, by Democrats in the House, who are now using their investigations under the umbrella of impeachment inquiry uh, to see what conclusions they come to, however many months down the road it ends up being. Well, you've got your work cut out for you then for the rest of the day. Your day's not over, Reggie, but thank you very much for joining us. You're very welcome. That's Reggie Jacani, our Global News Washington Bureau reporter.